0: Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast with Aaron Holt, Functional Nutritionist. I work with clients on the seacoast of New Hampshire and virtually all over the world through both private consultations and online nutrition programs. I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Mayorana, Registered Dietitian of Root Down Nutrition based in Asheville, North Carolina. We are both board-certified integrative and functional nutritionists. This means we dive deep with people to get to the root cause of their health issues. In this podcast, we will address all things health, food, and nutrition, discussing our research, clinical experience, and life experience. Please keep in mind our disclaimer, this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or medical treatment. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Kyle, are you ready to get into a meaty topic today?
1: (laughs) Oh my God. You didn't tell me you had a little pun saved up.
0: Yep. I've been sitting on that for about 48 hours.
1: (laughs) So meaty. This is a uh, difficult topic for some people to uh, to sink their teeth into.
0: <laughs> I wish I had more plans. Oh, boy. That's all I got. Um, I did you ever used to watch The Soup? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I had the hugest crush on Joel McHale. Yep. And then... I went as far as to, like, kind of internet stalk him and found out he had a wife and children, and all of my hopes and dreams were crushed, as though, like, the fact that he had a family was my limiting, was my limiting factor, not the fact that he's <laughs> yeah. a celebrity. Also, I was like, I guess also I have no lives, chance with him. <laughs> also lives
1: across the country,
0: but fine. I mean, it's to- not really a barrier when love is involved. So me and Joel McHale never made it. If he's listening to the show now, which he probably is, uh, <laughs> I just want to say, your ship has sailed. I'm sorry. Ouch. Yeah. So before we get into today's topic, I want to let everybody know that I opened up some spots in my Functional Nutrition private membership. So that's the way that I see clients one-on-one. We can dive into diet, functional lab testing, talk about mindfulness, movement, really whatever you need in order to get you feeling good and get you the results that you're after. So be sure to head over to my website, erinholthealth.com, I'll link to it in the show notes. If you want to schedule a free 30 minute inquiry call and you can just use that time to tell me about what's going on with you and we can kind of get you started on some next steps to get you feeling good. Um, Kyle, why don't you read the listener question? We'll head things
1: off that way. Okay. Um, I'm getting over a cold, so I'm just going to let people know if my voice is deeper than usual. Enjoy. Okay, so listener question. Hi, Kyle. I've been wondering, both you and Erin mentioned you've been vegetarians in the past. I also used to be veggie and now eat meat and fish, though don't eat them often. Could you talk about the difference between animal and other types of proteins? How much sustainable ethically sourced animal protein is enough, especially for someone like me who avoids lots of meats for environmental reasons? Thanks for considering and thanks for all you do.
0: Do you want to shout out who that is? Or d- does she wish to remain anonymous?
1: Honestly, I'd have to go digging back through my phone. So um, all I can say is you know who you are and thank you.
0: <laughs> shout out. It's an epic <laughs> shout out. Uh- <laughs> okay.
1: To all the ladies listening tonight, this one's for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So we decided to address this topic largely in part to some recent um, and maybe not so recent, popular documentaries that push the vegan agenda and kind of make everyone feel like that's the only way to be healthy. And then to echo that, we have no shortage of like pretty blonde bloggers talking about plant-based diets, making everyone feel like that w- what is what we have to do in order to be worthy of health. Um, And I just want to remind everybody, as Jessica Flanagan said on our last show, it's not always the people with the most experience or education that sets the rules for eating and living, but it's the people who wield the most power and the most influence. I am looking at you, Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) Loved you in Romeo and Juliet in 1996. Do not Um, love you as my nutritionist. (laughs) Anyway, so <laughs>
1: there was enough room on the door for both of them. I'm just going to say that.
0: <laughs> Thank God. Okay. So we can't answer her question directly about how much protein she needs because that, you know, we need way more health history and context and all that jazz to answer that specific question. What we can do is speak to her, her a lot of her other points. And that's what we plan to do on today's show. It's going to be a long one. This conversation is it has a lot of uh moving parts right it's really really nuanced so while we don't you know we can't get into every single nitpicky topic as it relates to you know vegetarian diet versus non-vegetarian diet or like what's the healthier option we're going to try to speak to some specific points and it's probably going to take a while so uh this is going to release the day before thanksgiving i know it's a big travel week for everybody so hopefully this is um some good stuff to put in your ear while you're scooting around the uh, the country with your family. All right. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the nutrition of a vegetarian diet. So if you are eating a more plant-based diet, um, what some things are to, to be aware of, some things that you can include and just make sure you're highlighting in your diet, especially if you're not feeling great. Um, we're also going to talk about how to transition from a vegetarian diet to an animal inclusive diet. If that's something that you're looking to do, we will address the environmental and sustainable concerns of a meat inclusive diet. We'll also speak to the, the whole morals and ethics dilemma. And finally, we'll close it out by addressing our opinions on the best ways to approach a meat inclusive diet. And now I just want to, say that people do choose to become vegetarians for many different reasons. Um, I myself stopped eating meat at a young age, I think I was around 10, uh, just because I didn't like it. I never liked meat as a kid growing up. Um, Over the years, my why changed and evolved. The more I I learned about food and the food system, the more more I was driven for what I thought to be ethical and moral reasons. So for about 20 years, I did go through some varying degrees of vegetarianism, including being a vegan and even a raw vegan at some points. And I do admit that I was definitely a soapbox vegan for a while there too. We'll address that a little bit on the show, um, just because we happen to see some food shaming being thrown around as it relates to plant-based diet or non-plant-based diet. So we want to speak to that. Um, I personally went through a pregnancy as a vegetarian. And my personal tipping point was, once I gave birth to Hattie, I started getting sick and and quickly realized that I needed to enhance my health with some animal food. So specifically, um, after like the month month to three months after I gave birth, I was getting really, really terrible headaches. Um, I would get really dizzy. Like I felt like I was going to pass out all the time. It was just... um, It was like super weird. It was something I hadn't felt before. And I can't really explain it, but like I intuitively knew, sometimes there's been points in my life where my intuition has just swooped in and I feel like I have a voice telling me exactly what I need to do. It's like very weird. Uh, But this is one of those times. And I just knew that I needed to eat meat. And it was, I had never craved it. Not one single time in the past 20 years had I craved meat or even looked at meat and been like, oh, that looks good. Never. Um, so it was a really hard thing for me to wrap my brain around because I was like disgusted by it. I was like, I don't want to do that. But I just knew that I needed to do that for whatever reason. Um, so I'll talk about how how I, I transitioned into that because it might be helpful for other people listening. Um, so um, today, <clears throat> kind of cut to today, in my nutrition practice, I, I work with, you know, many different groups of people one thing that i do is help people who are looking to switch gears to a more plant-based vegetarian diet and that's really how i started my career i was so plant focused because i was a vegetarian but i also work with people who are trying to find their way back to eating meat after being a vegetarian for a long time and i i think the focus with both cohorts with both groups of people is always going to be education um so as always if you do need more hand-holding with this and want to dive into your specific, unique situation, be sure to schedule that 30-minute free call with me and we can can get you started there. But understand, excuse me, I'm also getting over a cold, understand that it may be hard to achieve optimal health on a long-term vegetarian diet, especially if you are vegan, which means that you're consuming no animal proteins whatsoever. Now, it doesn't mean that it's impossible, and of course that that's not gonna to apply to every single person, but in order to support your health on a vegan diet, it does take a lot of thought, proper education, and probably some supplementation in order to hit all of your nutritional needs. So of course there's gonna be people who rage against this, you know, what I just said, and if that's how you're feeling listening to this, Just settle down for a minute because all we're looking to do on this show, both Kyle and myself, all we're looking to do is present information. We are not looking to pass judgment. We're just saying like, here's the information and then you get to decide what to do with that. We are certainly not trying to offend or criticize vegans or suggest that what you're doing is wrong at all. We are not doing that we don't take this subject lightly either of us because we've both had to make the very emotional and difficult decision to transition to an animal inclusive diet so we do know firsthand how much thought and care goes into that way of eating and we deeply respect that for whatever reason you're choosing to do it for sure
1: Um, i ate meat up until my first nutrition class in college and that teacher was Pretty anti-meat, and I mean, honestly, it was basically enough just to shame me into becoming a vegetarian. Wait, who was it? Um, uh, it was uh Dr. Masad. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I love um, her though.
1: Great teacher, great teacher. But you know, she she felt that a vegetarian diet was the the right diet. Um, and I'll talk more about kind of how this experience, um you know, what my experience was in this first nutrition class later in the episode. But once I removed meat, I started eating a ton of grains, legumes and nuts, none of which were properly prepared. I didn't even know that there was a way to properly prepare them then. Um, I still ate eggs, dairy and fish, but no meat. And I I just wasn't even really aware yet of what good quality was for animal protein other than organic. Um, or how food should be properly prepared because I had just started studying nutrition. And not eating meat for me worked um, for about a decade um, until I started having a lot of health issues. And I could not figure out where it was all coming from. And it turns out that even with the degree in nutrition, because this was years after I was done with school, I was still following a less than ideal vegetarian diet. And it did eventually catch up with me.
0: Thankfully, I remember when you like when you started having like your health crisis. Yes, it was like right after I had started eating meat, or maybe like a year after I had started adding animals, and your like hair was falling out, and you had like all yep. this weird stuff. And I was like, "Baby, what a look at your grain consumption!" I and was, I like, remember <laughs> it was like so it's like such a like a crazy thing to say at that point. Yep. Funny how i didn't i didn't come. want
1: to hear it i remember you saying <clears throat> make sure that you're soaking your your beans make sure that you're soaking your nuts and i was like what is she talking about and then um yeah i remember you being like what about the grains but I, but not eating meat i was like well what else am i supposed to eat so <laughs> it was crazy um this is crazy, this is crazy. This is crazy. But thankfully, because I grew up eating meat, incorporating it back into my diet was pretty easy once I made up my mind, because I never had like a taste or a texture problem in the first place. So my doctor recommended I went, I go on an elimination diet to see if that helped any of the issues I had going on. And I ended up adding meat back in just so that I could get enough calories and protein because the elimination diet takes away so much. Uh, I didn't go diving face first into a steak or anything, but it wasn't long before I was comfortably eating it again. And I really just wanted to switch things up to see if my diet was contributing to any of my symptoms and it turns out that it was. And I just, I found that I felt better not eating a lot of grains and including animal protein in my diet. I'm not dropping my anchor on one way of eating for life, but this is just what works for me. And that might be different for you. Um, We're all about people experimenting and trying to see what way of eating makes you feel your best. Um, I think we all loved it. Like We want to have this set it and forget it approach with food. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that our needs change all the time and are different person to person. And we just don't want people to feel any shame around changing your mind or changing the way you eat if
0: it makes you feel better. I like what you said about dropping the anchor because – when I first started eating meat, it was like I, I slowly trickled in, and then there was a while there where all I wanted to do like I couldn't get enough red meat. I just I needed meat at every single meal um, in order to feel good. And now um, you know, the, a few years after that, I'm like less interested in it. I still eat it, and I still feel better at eat, eating eating it sometimes. But like I'm doing more legumes. I'm definitely doing more plants and it's just so interesting like if we give our body the space and like really listen to what it's saying it's it's pretty intuitive it kind of knows what it needs and so um I yeah I like that I, I give myself some wiggle room like maybe at some point I will dabble in more of a vegetarian style diet who's to say but right now I, I know that that's Really not the best approach for me. Um, so just keep in mind that we do approach this topic as experienced real food nutritionists, as well as people who have done an incredible amount of science-backed research on the topic, and we have a solid understanding of not only the human body but also sustainable food practices. Um, so we're kind of hitting it from all different angles. We have no vested interest in what we're saying. We're not going to like start making money off people eating meat all of a sudden. So again, we're just trying to present some unbiased information or as unbiased as we can. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this show is because, probably the, the biggest reason, is because I've had quite a few people come to me on a vegetarian diet that are not doing well, but they're feeling shame around it because they think that a vegetarian diet is the only way to be healthy. Um, I, I had a girl reach out to me, this is just an example, with the same issue. She had gone to a plant-based Health coach who just took her further in the same direction. So rather than listen to like the fact that she wasn't doing well on a vegetarian diet, she's like, let's figure out how to like make do it harder. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And just an FYI, guys, if if that ever happens to you, your functional nutrition radar should be popping off that's going to be true for any diet whether it's vegan whether it's keto whether it's beach body whatever if you seek out help with the diet and your quote-unquote helper just tells you to do the diet harder then you want to run in the other direction because if something isn't working for you it's absolutely fine to say hey this isn't working for me and then move on to something else So if your health is struggling or you feel subpar as a vegetarian, or you're having like weird health issues like Kyle was after being on a vegetarian diet for a while, or if something is just intuitively telling you to add animal products back into your diet, understand that that's totally fine. We're all different. Somebody may thrive as a vegetarian and you may not. It doesn't mean that you're a failure. It really can be difficult to maintain optimal health on a vegetarian, especially a vegan diet. And just notice there that I said maintain, because some people start off feeling great on a vegetarian diet. This is especially true for folks that um, kind of weed out a lot of processed foods as they transition to a vegetarian diet. And that feeling of greatness can last for years because it can take years for nutrient deficiencies to take hold in the body. Um, but unfortunately, the flip side of that is it can also take years to rebuild nutrient stores, um, which I unfortunately had to learn the hard way.
1: Same here. I mean, yeah. the amount of supplements that I've had to add back in, like just to get, just to help my health get back to baseline, is a lot more than what I was taking on a vegetarian diet. And it, I think it's, I think it's because it takes years to get them back just like it takes years for the deficiencies to develop just like what you said it's so
0: true and you've done a lot of testing and have seen nutrient deficiencies and methylation issues and all that sort of stuff so you know you have that feedback saying like yeah what you were doing wasn't working for you right um so if you're listening to this and you are determined to continue on with a vegetarian diet we just want you to be thoughtful about your food and nutrient consumption so we're we are doing this episode as a resource for you guys it's not let's not like we're like let's convert all the vegetarians but like let's get all the vegetarians feeling the best they can feel Um, and this is going to take a bit of work and planning one way to do that is to run through level two of my fueled and fit program that's available on my website you can purchase it at any time it's a three-week program and it covers all of the topics that we're about to discuss um, or at least from a nutritional standpoint and it goes into way more detail with the how to's. We simply don't have enough time to break down like how exactly to approach this, but that program does that. So heads up there.
1: Awesome. OK, so let's look at some nutrients that are going to be hard to come by in a vegetarian diet and some of the common deficiencies that vegetarians have to deal with.
0: OK, cool. So we're obviously going to start off with B12 because it's you know the most obvious one. Um, you're probably going to want to consistently take B12 as a, as a supplement if you are a vegan, since there is no reliable dietary sources of B12 without animal products. Um, this is going to be especially true if you're avoiding processed vegans, foo- uh, vegan foods fortified with B12, you don't want to rely on spirulina. There's a, there's a lot of people that will tell you, you can use algae for a source of B12. Uh, but spirulina and other algaes are not true B12. Um, They can contain analogs, which will not improve your B12 status, but it can actually make the situation worse. So I'm not saying don't consume spirulina or algae. I'm not saying that they're bad foods. Just don't rely on them as your source of B12. Um, Since we're talking about bees, I want to throw out nutritional yeast into the mix because a lot of... um, I love nutritional yeast because I like the taste of it. A lot of vegans and vegetarians will lean on that as their source of B vitamins. Um, But... Do you want to speak a little bit to this, Kyle, because I know that you source, because you do have methylation issues, so you source a specific one, right?
1: Yeah, because the, the Braggs, which is what I had for years, that uses folic acid, and um, I ended up finding another brand on Amazon that is, I think it, it, I mean, it's slightly more expensive, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have that, which is what you want. You don't want the the synthetic stuff
0: yeah especially i mean we know that a large portion of the of the uh, population do have methylation issues so it's just um i think it's health supportive to always choose uh methylated folate over folic acid i mean no matter what you're doing whether you're pregnant or not pregnant or just supplementing with b vitamins and i do consider nutritional yeast as supplementing with b vitamins so just a heads up there all right K2 is another one. Um, This is not to be confused with vitamin K1, which is what we normally think about when we hear vitamin K, that can be found in leafy greens. So hopefully if you're eating a uh, real food, whole foods based vegetarian diet, you're getting plenty of that. But K2 is different. It's necessary for strong bones and teeth, as well as a healthy heart, healthy skin, um, can be helpful for cancer prevention. What K2 does is help to direct calcium to the right spot. So we want to put calcium in the bones and the teeth. We don't want to put calcium in the soft tissue. And so K2 kind of partners up with calcium and tells it how to do its job, so to speak. And really the only vegetarian diet source of K2 is NATO or natto. Mm. N a t t o. Do you, have, have you ever, you tried, ever this? tried this? <laughs> like honestly, no. I ugh. feel like I'm like a, a bad. Um, I was a bad vegetarian because I've never had that before. But where do you even find it?
1: I have no idea. This is like an n equals one. I'll I'll pass on. I'll set out this one. I don't want to try it. I don't need to.
0: Okay. Well, natto. I don't even know if I'm saying it right, but it's um it's this gooey fermented soybean product. Hmm um i know i love i love me some tempeh i'm not gonna lie so i'm into fermented soybeans um so i don't know if maybe it's a similar thing but i honestly have never seen it for sale i don't know where to get it um so chances are you're probably not eating that if you're a vegetarian but if you, are, if you are can
1: you let us know and tell us like where you're getting it how you're using it and what you think of the taste because yeah all the i'd things. be
0: curious yeah tag us both on instagram post your nato pics <laughs> yes and also tell us how to say the word yes Uh, but it's like notorious when you're looking like food you know food sources of vitamin k2 it's like always comes to the top of the list and i'm like who's out there eating this consistently (laughs) a
1: spoonful a day
0: (laughs) but um other places to get it are from grass-fed dairy so uh, dairy from 100 grass-fed cows and other animals contain lots of vitamin k2 um so keep that in mind i know some vegetarian i don't mean to disrespect vegans by throwing in animal sources of these nutrients but i know you know some people are vegetarians and do consume dairy so that's a good way to go about it cheese if you can't do dairy if you if you have a sensitivity you still might be able to tolerate ghee it's worth a try since um ghee from grass-fed cows does contain that vitamin k2 and it also contains vitamin a vitamin d all the good things so uh, you do if you are dairy sensitive um, make sure that you're looking for a brand that has been tested to be both lactose and casein free Um, some ghee brands that we like goddess ghee from down in Asheville. do you know if they're lactose and casein free certified i don't
1: know if they're certified they i don't know i've I've used
0: them with no problem Um, it's literally the best tasting ghee i've ever had in my entire life so you can tolerate that amazing Uh, but fourth and heart is a really good one um shoot i'm trying to think of oh tin star tin star ghee is definitely certified casein and lactose free so um, those are some ones to consider and then organic valley is another one um, that's pretty easy to find in most supermarkets Um, taste wise it's not as good as the other ones but there's some resources for you and then iron we have to look at iron, because plants contain a certain type of iron called non-heme iron, and that is very different than heme iron, which is found in animal sources. So non-heme iron, the plant iron, it's not as easily absorbed by the body, but you can increase the absorption by pairing iron-rich plant foods with vitamin C-rich foods. So an easy way to do this, I think, is with a green smoothie because you can blend up frozen peaches, peaches or berries, which are high in vitamin C, with some leafy greens, which are high in plant-based iron. So um, keep that in mind, that pairing. And then if your diet is heavily grain-based This can also present problems with iron absorption um, of Components of grains, we've talked about this on the show before. It's why we talk about properly preparing um, grains. But things like phytic acid can bind to iron and prevent your body from absorbing the iron and other minerals as well. So it's just one way that you, um, one reason that you want to prepare your food in a way to increase mineral availability. So that's something to be conscious of if you're eating a lot, a big grain or a, a high grain based diet as a vegetarian. And um, I also wanna note here that both coffee and tea can inhibit iron absorption. So just be sure to keep them away from your iron-containing meals or avoid them altogether if you do have a known iron deficiency it's just something to think about and it's always i think it's always a smart bet to get your iron levels tested so you kind of know your status know you where you stand with that
1: i don't think you get too much pushback either from that's like one of the few things i feel like the doctors are always pretty good about ordering if you want if you like request that with your annual physical
0: very very good point point. and um to i'm gonna get into the weeds a little bit here but We need iron in order to convert um, our thyroid hormone into active thyroid, uh, into T3. So if you have a known issue with hypothyroidism, definitely get your iron levels checked. Um, That might be a cool subject for a future show, but um, just keep that in mind. Okay, so plant foods that contain non-heme iron are greens, leafy greens like spinach, Swiss chard, collard greens, beet greens, also lentils, black beans, quinoa, pumpkin seeds, and tahini. Okay. Plant foods that contain vitamin C. So these are ones you'd want to pair with those other ones are peaches, pineapple, grapefruit, kiwi, oranges, fresh lemon juice. That's freshly squeezed lemon juice out of a lemon, strawberries, bell peppers, cauliflower, and tomato sauce. Now, if you're looking for, um, an iron supplement one that i like is megafood blood builder um, that's actually a megafood is a local company from new hampshire and it contains um, nutrients to maintain iron levels in the blood including a whole food derived vitamin c to enhance the absorption um, and this supplement doesn't seem to be constipating like many iron other iron supplements are um, if you're if you're supplementing with just like a straight iron supplement, you also want it to want to take it with some hydrochloric acid, especially if you think you have low stomach acid, which many vegetarians do, uh, because iron absorption is dependent on hydrochloric acid. So keep that in mind. There's a good iron supplement that has hydrochloric acid in it. It's from Apex, Apex Energetics. I think it's called HemeVite. That one's available on my online dispensary. So keep that in mind um, in terms of iron supplementation too, because we have to always think about the cofactors of vitamins and minerals, but also how are they absorbed by the body. Okay. And then another one is omega-3 fatty acids. Um, You know, We've talked about this on the show before, but I think it bears repeating because we hear all about the health benefits of omega threes all the time—heart health, brain health, mood, anti-inflammatory properties. Um, but what we don't always recognize are the is that those those health benefits are associated with long chain omega three fatty acids, um, and those long chain fats are found in animal sources, right? Especially fatty fish but grass-fed beef, um, eggs from pasture-raised chickens. Now, as a vegetarian, you're probably aware of this, and you've probably been trying to increase your intake of chia seeds and hemp seeds and flax seeds and walnuts because those are all promoted as omega-3 rich foods. However, this is so important, the omega-3s found in those plant foods are short chain fatty acids and they have to be converted to long chain fatty acids in order to reap all of those um, health benefits that I just mentioned. And our bodies aren't really super efficient at this conversion of short chain to long chain. It's really hard to get enough omega-3 fatty acids on a vegetarian diet because vegetarians seem to have more of a difficult time with this conversion as well. So I would really consider supplementing with um, algal oil, algal oil, I don't know how to say it. Everyone else calls it algal oil, but it sounds so weird. It's like very throaty to say that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um but we've again we've talked I can't remember the exact episode, but it was one of the episodes where we talked about supplementation and we did talk a little bit about that. So think about that. It's definitely expensive, but it's a good way to get those long chain omega-3s in. Um but you could also, if you're open to it, add in wild caught seafood like salmon, sardines, mackerel, herring, oysters, mussels, clams. Um, they're they're going to help to increase your, you know, your omega-3 fatty acids, and they also contain iron. They contain bi- vitamin B12. They contain zinc. They contain selenium, copper, vitamin D. So they contain a lot of the minerals and the nutrients that you'd be missing on a vegetarian diet anyway. So, if you're open to adding seafood, I think it's a, it's a smart bet. And then we have to talk about preformed vitamin A, um, and so. You know, I think a lot of vegetarians feel safe in the vitamin A department because they're probably eating a lot of orange foods that contain beta carotene, but beta carotene is not the same as preformed vitamin A. There's a big difference between the beta carotene found in plants and then true preformed vitamin A because that vitamin A is found in animals. And now food labels won't tell you this. Food labels just package up beta carotene and vitamin A as the same thing, but it's not the same thing. Vitamin A that we get from plant foods and those are going to be like the orange and and um yeah, the orange foods like carrots, butternut squash, sweet potatoes, even cantaloupe. That beta carotene is a vitamin A precursor, like I said. So before our bodies can use it, it first has to be converted to true vitamin A, which is called retinol. And again, this is another one of those conversions that our bodies aren't super efficient at. So only a small percentage of beta carotene actually gets converted over to vitamin A. So you can eat all the carrots in the world, but you can still be deficient in vitamin A. And vitamin A is really necessary for healthy bones, for healthy skin, for vision, for our hormonal health, for the immune system. Um, one thing, you guys know that I run a lot of uh, GI maps on my clients. That's a stool test. And one of the things that it screens for is something called secretory IgA. And um, that's basically like looking at the immune system at the level of the gut mucosa or your um, what's happening, really what's happening with the the immune system systemically. And I see a lot of low secretory IgA. Um, It kind of goes hand in hand with chronic illness, with autoimmune issues. If you've been fighting off infections, gut infections for a long time, and one of the best ways to increase the secretory IgA is by taking a vitamin A supplement. Um, But again, it's not beta carotene that's gonna do that, it's that true preformed vitamin A um, now beta carotene is an antioxidant, so I'm not saying don't eat that. I mean, those foods are super necessary. It's just not the same thing. Um, so if you're thinking about that, you'd want to supplement with vitamin A. I like the, the, the one from Seeking Health. It's liquid, so it's just droppers. You could also consider adding in some cod liver oil, um, if you're open to that, because that's going to contain some naturally occurring vitamin a and it's also going to contain contain those uh vitamin or excuse me those omega-3s that we talked about okay and then finally vitamin d3 Uh, vegan sources of vitamin d usually come as vitamin d2 but that is not well utilized by the body not nearly as well as d3 there's some research to to show that it kind of confuses the body the body doesn't really know what to do with vitamin d2 so make sure you're not supplementing with vitamin d2 if you um, eat a lot or consume a lot of almond milk or coconut milk, like pre-packaged, store-bought non-dairy milks, you want to look at the label and notice if the stuff that you're drinking often has vitamin D two on the label because that's something that you would want to that you would want to avoid, especially if you're consuming it regularly. Um, and so, something you might want to supplement with vitamin D three. Um if you are supplementing with that, you also want to make sure that it contains vitamin K too. Cool? Cool. This is going to be such a long episode because we have so it's, much more honestly, to say. Honestly,
1: just get a snack. It's around yep. Thanksgiving. <laughs>
0: you just, you just get a snack and settle in. We could have broken it up as two episodes, but I feel like it's just nice to have it all packaged up in one, one, one spot, don't you think? Yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> so so other ways to make sure that you're getting the most nutrition out of a vegetarian or plant-based diet one make sure you're eating real food right crazy this is you're the... crazy <laughs> yeah um this kind of just goes across the board no matter what diet philosophy you fall in line with just eat real food so don't eat the fake meats don't eat the processed soy don't eat the processed junk food right? Vegan ice cream sandwiches are still ice cream sandwiches. Mm -hmm. Um, Processed vegetarian food is low in nutrition and it's often high in damaged fats and other sketchy things that we want to avoid. It's such a biggie. I mean,
1: how how many vegans or vegetarians have you known who are basically eating the standard American diet, but just without meat?
0: Right. So don't do it, I mean, under the guise of like, I'm being healthy, right? And I think a lot of people do that. Oh, I'm going to switch over to a plant-based diet. Plant-based diet include plants.
1: (laughs) So eat those, eat those. (laughs) Um,
0: All right. You also want to eliminate refined industrial seed oils. I mean, we've talked about this ad nauseum, go back to episode three. We talk about this so much. you know, it's that whole fatty acid ratio that our body needs. And if we're eating a lot of vegetable oils, a lot of salad dressing made with vegetable oils, canola oils, all that kind of stuff, um, it's going to, you know, it's just gonna favor a more inflammatory process in the body. So chickadee check that out. Um and then finally as we were talking about if you do lean on a lot of grains and legumes for your diet which chances are you probably do as a vegetarian you want to make sure that you're properly preparing most of them you know not 100% of the time but if it's something you're eating often then make sure it, you're getting the most uh nutrition out of them um yeah
1: cool okay. um. yeah and i would say same with nuts i uh, big time like grains and legumes definitely but for nuts I remember I was like knocking back almonds being like I'm good with protein I'm getting getting it in there but um, was not properly preparing them so it's so easy what I do is I'll soak my nuts while um, it's like <laughs> I know the second I said it I was like hold it together Kyle um, <laughs> I'll soak those nuts, these nuts, um, on Saturdays while I'm out and about. Then I rinse them at night, spread them out on a parchment-lined baking sheet, throw them in the oven at the lowest temp, and just leave them there all night. There's, It's so easy, and I swear they taste so much better.
0: Um, You know what I wonder is – I'm just – this is speculation here. I wonder, because you were eating so many almonds, if maybe if you had been properly preparing them, if you – might not have ended up with an almond allergy
1: I know right and I mean it wasn't I've since reintroduced almonds totally fine but yeah I was having almond um granola every that damn granola from you I remember how insane I was about that for like two years yeah
0: yeah (laughs) um And I do. I wrote a whole blog post on how to properly, how and why to properly prepare your nuts and your seeds. So I'll link to that in the show notes so you can follow along with that. Um, All right, what else? Make sure you're focusing on starchy roots, tubers, and hard squashes. Those are always going to be the more nutrient-dense sources of carbohydrates over over uh, grains. I'm not saying you can't eat grains. Many people do fine on them, but just be sure that it's not your only source of carbohydrate. I think that roots and tubers just have a little bit uh, more easily accessible nutrition. Um, Your gut bacteria really do thrive on those starches. So increasing your intake will hopefully keep your gut flora happy. Um, So that's just something else. And then if you're open to adding in any animal products, I think eggs, particularly the yolks from pasture-raised chickens or ducks or other types of birds um, is a really smart bet because egg yolks contain A, D, E, K2, B vitamins, choline, minerals. I mean, this is like the nutritional powerhouse that we always hear about. Um, They're they're just packed with so many nutrients that are difficult to secure in the standard American diet or even a vegetarian diet. So be sure to do that. Remember that the pasture-raised part is important here because chickens who are allowed to forage for their food are going to have more nutrition in their egg yolks. Um, chickens really like to peck around and eat little grubs and bugs and seeds and things in the, in the, uh, in the grass. Um, and when they are allowed to do that, not only is their meat more, more nutritious for us when we eat it, but their eggs are as well. And this is why if you look at the egg yolk, of um i don't know like your neighbor's chicken versus the supermarket they're a completely different color it's kind of cool to uh check that out yes i i
1: still like struggle wrapping my head around still um seeing the cartons of liquid egg whites at the grocery store it's just like throwing away the liquid gold like not having the yolk in there i just don't get it i i mean like i get how it started it was all when we all thought fat was bad but we know that's not the case anymore and not for nothing the egg whites from a carton are definitely not a sustainable or environmentally friendly
0: choice either just eat the whole egg i know what are they doing what are manufacturers doing with the egg yolk i that's a great question it kind of fills me with blind rage i don't know maybe they're like giving them to like the mayo manufacturers to use like mayonnaise with
1: I'm sure, I'm sure they all have, like, monthly meetings and, like, how best can we use our product?
0: (laughs) They're like, nah, skip it, just throw it out. Yeah, right? The... I, I still have clients that are stuck in the, like, well, I have high cholesterol. High cholesterol runs in my oh. family, therefore I won't eat egg yolks. I mean, like, smart people, like, mm-hmm. smart, educated people. It's just so indoctrinated in our, you know, like, the, so I just, I honestly don't even, like, try to convince people otherwise. I'm like, cool, just eat the egg yolks. Delicious. Make sure you're adding some salt to it so it doesn't taste like crying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, but... The other thing to keep in mind that eggs are one of the most common food allergies and sensitivities, but what I've seen in my my practice, both through food sensitivity testing or just elimination style diets, is that while some people might not be able to tolerate egg whites, they can eat egg yolks. So just kind of an interesting tidbit that I throw out there. one way that some people are going to like probably think this is kind of gross, but oh one thing I was doing for a while just to increase my egg yolk. And the other thing with egg yolk is that you're, uh, you can access the nutrition, the nutrients better, the less it's cooked. So the more you cook it, the less nutrient dense it becomes. Um, oh, God, where are you going with this? <laughs> no, I know, I know. But the thing, okay, well, a couple of things. Um I prefer eggs, like, cooked all the way through. What is it? Over hard? Like, Mm. I love me a fried egg, but I liked it cooked all the way through. And I've had a couple people say, well, don't you know that it's more nutritious if it's less cooked? I'm like, yeah, I I know that. But guess what? I also enjoy my food. Like, it's not just about how many nutrients can I maximize in each meal. It's like, can I actually enjoy what I'm eating? So take this with a grain of salt, but, you know, just throwing information out out there to people. Um, For a while, I was doing... Kelly Brogan's breakfast smoothie. Kelly Brogan, I super fangirl her. You can go Google her and um all that she does. But she has a breakfast smoothie and it's she puts two or three raw egg yolks in. it's oh like rocky. Like straight oh up Oh my god, rocky. that's exactly so... what I'm thinking. But she also does frozen straw. It sounds disgusting, it's very good. Frozen strawberries or frozen cherries, a bunch of raw cacao powder and like coconut milk or coconut oil so it's like a fat bomb um but it's really good it's really thick it just feels like you're drinking a ton of nutrients so i was doing that for a while you know i wish you could see my face right now i I mean
1: one is one thing but you're like the smoothie's like two or three eggs in there huh
0: i think i was doing two she says like maybe two to four and i was like that's awesome wow wow um Yes, and then I was reserving the egg whites and doing some type of like macaroon cookie with them. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't throwing them out just for anyone listening. I don't know, you know, obviously salmonella is a concern, but I was, I knew where I was getting the egg yolks from, I felt, or the eggs from, I felt comfortable with it. Just something to throw out there. Don't, you know, I'm not giving advice to do that, I'm just throwing it out there. Okay. So you'd also so if you are on a vegetarian diet you'd want to think about potentially supplementing with all of the nutrients that i just talked about now if you're a vegetarian um thinking you want to transition away from a vegetarian diet and start to eat more um animals here are some like talking points one it might just make sense to work with a nutritionist on this one just for some help and guidance. But the first thing you wanna think about is starting low and going slow. I started with bone broth, right? Like that was the way that I transitioned because I wasn't craving anything. I was just like, I know I have to do this. What's the best way to do this? So I just started by adding, making my own bone broth and and doing some blended soups with bone broth, um, like squash soup. That was really a great way for me to transition in. And then I started with little bits of chicken here's the deal. We need hydrochloric acid and pepsin in order to break down protein. And there's kind of this like whole use it or lose it thing with with HCL, with stomach acid, and if you don't eat a lot of meat or if you've been vegetarian for a long time, your body doesn't have to produce as much because, it's you know, there's not as much of a need for it. So you can start to produce less and less hydrochloric acid. So I kind of had to, like, build up my reserves. I had a supplement with it. So you'd want to consider supplementing with, with a hydrochloric acid and pepsin. Um, supplement that's going to be contraindicated for anybody with h pylori or gastritis so if you have symptoms of either of those get yourself a gi map test or get yourself some type of testing um endoscopy whatever to make sure you don't have that before you start throwing hydrochloric acid down down your your belly this is up where you definitely would want to work with a practitioner um but keep that in mind start low go slow if you are craving something start with that because that is your butt. Like, if you're like, I just need salmon, or I just want a burger, that is your body's way of telling you what it needs. So listen to that. Like, maybe that's where you start. Um, and then again, continue to supplement with the with all the nutrients that I talked about as you make your transition into a meat inclusive a diet. Cool? cool, cool,
1: cool. I think I did a meat sauce for my first my first. Um, meat experience adding it back in tons of veggies and then it was just kind of like ground beef was just kind of mixed up in there
0: so I have a friend who did the same thing and I was talking to her about it as I was making the transition and she was like I had to like she was like all the sauce everything I cooked everything in sauce and had to like mix it in and I was the exact opposite I had to have like my little chicken bits on the side I was like a toddler I didn't (laughs) want it like interacting with the rest of my food I had to eat it separately (laughs) Now, not not anymore, but that was like, I didn't want it touching. So go with your gut on that one, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah. So part of the, um, the question that we got on Instagram was what the difference between animal protein and non-animal protein is. And I just want to speak a little bit about this um, in terms of macronutrients. So we've all seen these comparisons out there before, but like you need to eat something like three and a half cups of broccoli to get the same amount of protein that you would in just two ounces of beef, which is a really small amount. Uh, If you had the same exact amount of beef and lentils, say 100 grams each, the beef is going to give you 36 grams of protein and the lentils would give you nine. So say you're trying to get 30 grams of protein at each meal, which is common, um, you know, 20 to 30, somewhere around there. If you went with fish, pork, chicken, beef, you're looking at like around 100 to 200 calories before you hit that 30 grams. But if you try to get the 30 grams through lentils or beans, you could be looking at upwards of 500 plus calories. just what it takes before you hit the 30 grams and that ends up being like two cups so not only do you have to process a lot more calories and carbohydrates in order to get the same amount of protein you would from an animal but a lot of people it's not even realistic amounts um, to eat you know, I personally couldn't sit down to two cups of beans or lentils uh, unless I planned on being, like, pantless and just, like, farting alone in my apartment all night. Um, she's single. Alice. She's uh, single, ladies. Uh, I mean, <laughs> ladies. Okay. 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 Um, <laughs> The calorie and the carb difference, I don't want people to like fixate on that. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can become an issue over time. If you're already dealing with blood sugar dysregulation or you're having difficulty losing weight um, and you're not eating meat, Your your plants might be very carb heavy and that balance just might not be working for you. Uh, and another thing to point out here is that our protein requirements keep increasing as we age. So it can become a challenge over time to eat enough plant-based protein in order to maintain muscle mass.
0: Yeah, um, and you know, what's kind of interesting is just talking about protein, it made me think of this. I just was recently reviewing an organic acid test for a client and uh, she is more on the vegetarian spectrum. She doesn't really like meat, like she's just kind of nauseated by it. And um, her uh, neurotransmitters were all pretty low, and we need protein in order to produce neurotransmitters. So, you know, I was thinking about that, like, you know, what's kind of the downside of some of the downsides of not eating enough um, bioavailable protein Blood sugar, absolutely super bang on. I mean, protein is the most um, satiating of all the macronutrients. So if you feel kind of like crazy hunger that's another one um that's how I towards the end of my vegetarian days I like could not eat enough I would eat like seven bowls of grains and be like I'm still hungry so true I just like couldn't I could yes. not satiate myself um so that's another indication that your body's probably not getting enough protein and then if you do you know that it, that was kind of an interesting thing for me to see and for me to learn is like oh okay low protein diets um she's having a hard time making neurotransmitters like serotonin serotonin, dopamine, all those feel-good chem-chems. So something to throw out there. And, you know, you're saying that our protein requirements increase with age. And, you know, and this is like from a muscle- muscle-wasting standpoint. I wonder if that has like, and I don't know that I'm just like throwing this out there. I wonder if that's like, is it that really our protein needs are increasing or or is it more an issue with hydrochloric acid? Because we know that we, that as we age, our hydrochloric acid decreases, and we know that we need hydrochloric acid in order to break down protein. So I'm wonder, wondering how much of that kind of uh, comes into the fold. Um, I bet that plays a huge part. And I gotta tell you, I, I see so many
1: um, older people in the hospital that, that just stop eating meat as they get older because they just their taste for it changes so then it like it just kind of adds adds more fuel to the fire
0: well that's an awesome point to bring up because that is can be one of the indications that you're actually not producing a lot of stomach acid a lot of hydrochloric acid if you lose palatability for meat like if you're like i'm just turned off by it i don't want to eat it that can be an indication that your hcl is low so, it's all connected. Wow, that's cool. The other yeah. thing too is that so many people are put on PPIs and acid blocking drugs for acid reflux. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like just absolutely bananas how many people are on these things, and that obviously shuts down the production of stomach acid. That's the whole point of it. Um so if you're not you know if you're on these medications, which many many people are, especially as they get older, then you know you're not going to be producing the stomach acid that you need. Um, one of my clients, I'm going to throw, not throw her under the bus, but I'm going to use her as an example because it's so cool. I mean, it's just cool, like what the human body can do. Um, so she was on an, uh, acid blocking drug, uh, for, her, for reflux for like five years, I think and um could not put on muscle mass. Now she is super active, she's a triathlete, eats a really, you know, quote-unquote clean diet, couldn't put on more muscle. She went off of the drug and FYI I am not suggesting you do that without the the care of your doctor because you really want to titrate very slowly off of those off of those drugs with the help of your doctor, but she went off of it and put on, like, without changing her diet, without changing her exercise routine, put on, like, I think 10 pounds of muscle, like, really quickly. Wow. Because it's her body was just, like, had the hydrochloric acid to break down the freaking protein. Like, it's just incredible. So keep that in mind. When we're talking about protein requirements, it's not just about how much you're eating, but it's also, like, the quality, the bioavailability, and what else your body is doing in order to access that protein and break down that protein. So... Um, we're when we're talking about the difference between plant and animal protein, we also want to look at it from a micronutrient standpoint, right, as well, not just protein. And a common question I get is, uh, is organic and properly raised animals better than regular? Like, does it really matter? Is it really healthier? And now Kyle, you're going to talk about how this matters from a sustainability standpoint. But from a nutritional standpoint, it absolutely does matter, because there There is a difference nutritionally. Um, Animals, I kind of touched on this earlier with the chickens and the eggs, but animals that are allowed to eat their proper diet and sort of live their best life, so to speak, um, they're gonna be healthier. So they're gonna have healthier tissues, which translates to us when we eat them. They will require less antibiotics because they're less sick, right? And then grass-fed beef, just to use that as an example, is higher in omega-3 fatty acids. It's higher in something called CLA, conjugated linoleic acid. Um, and you might've heard of CLA because people supplement with this. It's a polyunsaturated fat. Um, people use it for muscle growth and for fat loss. Maybe just eat some grass-fed beef. I don't know. (laughs) Um, chickens tend to have chickens that are properly raised tend to have higher omega-3 content, higher, higher vitamin A content. Um, so there is, there is a difference from a nutrition standpoint. So, okay. Um, Kyle, you're gonna you're gonna head up the whole sustainability conversation now so we're switching gears a little bit and before you get into it, I want to be super crystal clear. we are not advocating for eating factory farmed meat. We're never doing that. I mean those of you who regularly listen to the show probably know that about us already, but it does bear repeating. Um, so that's not what we're saying here um, at all all right we're just gonna talk about some common arguments against eating meat so people that are out there saying we shouldn't eat meat because of x y and z we're going to talk to those points especially as it relates to sustainability and the environment uh, because the whole meat pollutes the environment is very common rhetoric that we hear so um let's explore that my girl yeah Kyle. okay i mean
1: sometimes once we start doing something new or we join a new community whether it's religion, politics, or food, we start to get all our facts and information from within that community. And things can get a bit too biased, black and white, we are right, they're wrong. And it can be easy to kind of unintentionally shut yourself off from opposing views and opinions and have a bit of a tunnel vision
0: around something. Yeah, it's it's called confirmation bias. And it's very common. I mean, we all do it. Um, it's this tendency to search for information and favor information that confirms your existing belief systems or even like to interpret new information coming in in a way that that supports your own beliefs. So yes,
1: yes. And who we follow on social media is a perfect example of how this can happen. I uh, yep. follow a bunch of paleo or vegan people and soon those people make up the majority of your news feed and all the information you're being exposed to
0: is aligned with that point of view. I use, I mean, I have definitely done this a lot in the past with food specifically. Um, back when I was a vegetarian, uh, the China study was my Bible, which unfortunately has since been thoroughly debunked as being just like piss poor science reporting. So it's too bad for T. Colin Campbell because I do love him, but <laughs> sorry, it was a bad book. Um, I. I really only interacted with vegan blogs. Like, I this was back in the time where like blogging was a thing. Like, people would blog every day, and then people would like write comments, and there was like communities and you know in blogs. Like, this is like definitely going back like a decade or so. Um, and I was on a lot of like online forums, but they were all vegan, so everybody was saying the same thing, and everybody was supporting the same exact stuff. You know, it was just like regurgitation over and over again. Every book I read was vegan. Um, I mean. I didn't ever really check for qualifications or actual studies, like, hey, who's saying this information? Where's it coming from? But just because my mind was already made up, veganism was the right way. So I basically just aligned myself with anything that backed up that same mentality. I remember remember dragging my mom to a vegan like all day seminar, all vegan all the time. Oh my god. And she like she's has always known her body really well and no and her like shtick is always like meats and veggies. I do really well with meats and veggies, meats and veggies. But I was like, you're killing yourself. Um so you need to be a vegetarian. (laughs) And so like she humored me and like came to the seminar and like tried to be a vegetarian for a while and God bless her god
1: lover yeah humans love belonging to communities where people think just like us almost as much as we love banding together to hate something that's different from us or what we're doing so we just think it's crucial to hear the flip side of arguments so you can make an informed decision so that's all we're trying to do here so environmental impact um I wanna start off by disclosing where I got a lot of this information. Erin and I follow many different functional, integrative and holistic practitioners who all bring different things to the table. But one thing a lot of people we follow have in common is their ability to dissect scientific studies and research and present information in a clear way. hopefully unbiased way. Uh, Separating causation from correlation is a huge one. So for this episode, I pulled information from Chris Kresser, who we've talked about on the show many times before. He recently participated in a very long debate, like over three hours with a well-known plant-based cardiologist on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. So if you want to hear more like a lot more you can go check that out Um, we're not going to come even close to addressing all the different arguments or facts that are out there in this episode another source that i used was diana rogers Um, she's a dietitian nutrition therapy practitioner and she also um, owns an organic vegetable and meat farm in massachusetts Uh, I also got a little bit of information from Rob Wolf Um, if you're not familiar with him he used to be a research biochemist so definitely knows how to boil down um, studies and is just a really well respected health expert the way Rob and Chris can kind of just reduce down really complex nutrition information is amazing and I'm grateful to be able to have them as resources And I realize that these three people are kind of known in the paleo world, but the reason I use them for information is because Diana's on the front lines of the meat industry, actually um, owning and operating a farm, uh, really trying to advocate for change and more humane treatment of animals. Chris and Rob are just so freaking smart and they, they don't cherry pick studies to support one particular way of thinking. They just look at the data um, without kind of trying to bring their own bias. And that's really what you
0: want. I, um, love all three of them. We're talking about like them, like we know them personally, (laughs) Diana. (laughs) I'll see them uh, on Thursday for Thanksgiving. Uh, They don't know us, just to be clear. We just pretend, we just pretend like they do. Um, and you're so, you know, you're so right. I, I love them. I, I quite a bit. I really, really, really do. And all the information they put out there, we'll link to their, Uh, websites in our show notes. Because if you're hearing some of this stuff and you want to sink your teeth into more, um, they're great places to get that information. But do realize, like Kyle pointed out, they are pillars of the paleo movement. And so to that extent, they do have some stake in the game. So we can't say it's completely unbiased information. We were talking about that confirmation bias piece. But we do trust them. We respect them. And Uh, It's important to note here that both Chris and Diana are also practitioners. So remember, that's an important thing when you're out there talking about health, because they're seeing people on the front lines, they're evaluating labs, they're seeing what's happening physiologically within people's bodies. They're not just reporting on information, right? They're, They're kind of responding in real time to how Diets are affecting people's health, so that's super duper important. I know Jessica talked about that in the interview that I did with her, Jessica Flanagan. Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet already, because there's um, a lot of wisdom in that.
1: Yeah, it's such a good point. I mean, you can you can be uh, an expert at picking apart studies, but until you're sitting across from um, clients and actually hearing you know, how they feel doing different diets and eating different ways. Like it's just, you don't
0: get the full picture or seeing lab work too. You know, exactly. that's so important. Like, exactly. you know, I'm sure you showed up to your doctor with like your shit show, of my <laughs> suitcase, your suitcase of <laughs> crap. Yes. And she's like, yeah, so your labs, uh, okay. We might want to switch yeah. gears here. Anyway, yep. So let's talk about greenhouse gases <clears throat> because I feel like that's everybody's The Mm -hmm. cow farts are killing us all,
1: (laughs) cow farts. So yeah, and the common argument for not eating meat um, because of greenhouse gases is from a study from 2006, and it said that cows produce more greenhouse gases than all of the world's transportation combined, so about 18% of all greenhouse gases. This study was from the UN Food and Agriculture Association, and it was later found that the researchers were pretty biased and the comparison to transportation was totally flawed. At this point, though, plant-based advocates had already taken the study and ran with it, like the China study, which is usually what happens. So regardless of um, us finding out later on that the study was flawed, it just it's it's off and running and same thing happened with saturated fat it took us what I don't even know a decade two decades to spread the word enough that the study everyone was using was a crap study in the first place. So in this 2006 study they used all the greenhouse gas emissions associated with meat production we're talking fertilizer production land clearance methane emissions from the animals digestion farting and even the vehicles that were used on the farms all of this was compared to fossil fuel burning for transportation but then one of the authors ended up like going public saying that it wasn't a fair comparison and that they factored in everything they possibly could for meat emissions but didn't do the same thing for transportation no that's a big that's a big whoopsie kudos to her for coming forward it Her, took him, the words right out of 80. my mouth. It was a guy, and like kudos to you for just like owning up to that. Um, and the data was analyzed again and estimated that the cattle contributes to less than 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions, not 18%. That's a big jump. That's a huge jump. And the caveat here is that it also doesn't account for how grazing livestock can help improve. Um, improve things they can help remove and sequester carbon from the atmosphere and get carbon back into the plants and the soil so it's not just draining resources but livestock is actually using resources and then putting them back into the cycle
0: mother nature is such a beaut i know isn't that crazy
1: so water use let's dive into that um For water use, there are a lot of numbers thrown around in terms of how much water it takes to process a pound of beef from start to finish. These numbers have ranged from 200 to over 100,000 liters of water needed to process a kilogram of beef, so obviously a pretty big range. First off here, different environments are going to require different amounts of water. So is a study looking at a feedlot, a pasture land, or maybe even somewhere outside of the U.S. completely? And one of the biggest discrepancies in these studies that look at water use is differentiating between the kind of water that they use in their estimations. So there's something called blue water, and this refers to fresh ground, fresh surface groundwater that the cattle's drinking. Then there's green water. This refers to rain, runoff, um, water needed for crop growth, water that's sinking into the ground. So, as you can imagine, when you're including something like precipitation into your estimations, it's gonna skew the numbers a lot compared to studies that aren't counting rainfall.
0: So, if you're if you're so they counted rainfall as they, part of yes like the yes. use. But like rainfall would happen regardless of whether the cattle were there or not. Yes, correct. Okay, correct. Yeah, I'm just getting I'm hearing this, this stuff for the first time right now. So I'm just trying to get my facts straight. Yeah,
1: it seems kind of crazy when you think about it like that. Like if you're including rain, which is green water, then you're assuming that all rain that falls on fields and pastures is used to feed livestock and saying that rain um, drains water resources like the use of rain drains our water resources doesn't make a lot of sense when you compare it to say getting water from irrigation or pulling from a nearby reservoir Um, there was a study that was done in australia It was a pretty well done study and it was over two years and it looked at three different production systems, Um, a small organic supplier, a mid-sized sheep meat supplier and a large supplier where uh, the animals spent some of their time on a feedlot. They didn't count things like rainfall or evaporation unless the water quality was somehow reduced when it re-entered the water cycle. So it was just a much more accurate picture in terms of what water they're counting. So compared to the over 100,000 liters that have been thrown around before, they ended up finding a range of 200 to 500 um, liters. So a lot less. And the higher end of this range was for the feedlot. But now the study was in Australia. So would this be the same in the US? No, because we use a ton of irrigation here. There was a some a study in the u s. that was similar to this study. They didn't count rain, but they did include water that was used for irrigation, um, drinking, and processing. And they still ended up coming up with a number that was under four thousand liters. So obviously a lot higher than the Australian numbers two hundred to five hundred, but definitely not the hundred thousand plus that we've seen thrown around. Um, I've also read that, Studies, and this is interesting, studies that don't use rainfall come up with numbers that are similar to the amount of water that's used to produce rice, sugar, avocado, and almonds. So that's just interesting to provide some context. Without knowing how much water is used to produce other foods we eat, we just hear these numbers for beef and it's they just all sound
0: like a lot. That's such a good point. I mean, it just growing food, period requires an extraordinary amount of water right? right so yeah it's like not it's not cherry picking the data but it's just like throwing specific data out into the masses to prove a point without like giving- Providing context, context. Yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. So, um, and another
1: thing to think about here is where are all the studies looking at the amount of water and resources that uh, we need to produce and process fake meats like tofurkey and all the soy and corn and wheat that that's processed and then used in many of these products. There aren't any, but you better believe these products just aren't popping up on the shelves without impacting the environment in some way through transportation, storage, production, and water use.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's one of the problems with using the sustainability issue to defend the not eating meat position, because unless you're eating a processed food-free local diet, your diet probably isn't sustainable for the planet, even if it is vegetarian. Right. So
1: land use. Um, One of the arguments for not eating meat is that if we just used all the available land to grow vegetables instead of cattle, um, we'd be able to feed everyone on the planet. Now, a big misconception around this argument is the assumption that land can be used interchangeably between pasture land for cattle and land for growing vegetables and plants. You cannot grow vegetables everywhere in all different climates soil, dirt, sand. And pasture land is used specifically for animals. It's not land that you can flip back and forth between livestock and vegetables. And something like two-thirds of the surface land on Earth isn't suitable for vegetable production. So a vegetarian diet might be sustainable, but a vegan diet definitely would not be in terms of land use. And if we aren't using the pasture land for grazing animals, then it's just lost and it turns to dust, which definitely isn't sustainable. So in order to preserve the land and try to make good use
0: of it all, we need both vegetables and herbivores all right so we need veggies and animals for healthy soil and such a good point i mean such a point to drive home because soil is everything our food gets all of its nutrition from the soil whatever you're putting in your mouth if it was grown on piss poor nutrient poor soil it's going to be piss poor nutrient poor quality like that's just how it goes so um, how can you talk a little bit about how animals improve the environment and the soil? Because I think that's a hard thing to, to wrap your head around, but it's, it's a super necessary thing in order to put nutrients into the soil, contrary to, to popular belief. Yeah, yeah. So
1: animals will naturally graze and move around. They chew on grass, which then helps stimulate the grass to grow. Otherwise, you know, the grass will just dry and die. Um, They'll then inoculate the grass during their digestive process poop it back out onto the soil which then inoculates the soil with microbes and nutrients creating biodiversity and now this is a natural alternative to the chemical fertilizers that we overuse in the u.s and they all just deplete the soil basically killing off all the good stuff in there that helps create the biodiversity that we want in the first place.
0: Okay, so we need animals and using those animals in farming actually reduces our need for chemical fertilizers. Yes, okay. yeah.
1: <clears throat> um, so as the animals are you know, moving around and they're migrating and herding, they're not staying in the same place. And this moving around is helping keep the soil and the animals healthy because for examples, you could have um, you could have chickens one place and they're eating some of the parasites in the soil. Then you move the chickens someplace else on the farm and move another animal where the chickens were, and now that soil is healthier for those animals because the parasite load is less, which ultimately makes that animal healthier. This is not what happens when you eat factory farmed meat. So some people argue that eating pigs or chickens are better than eating cows, which is not true because conventionally raised chickens and pigs are 100% indoors, whereas most cattle is at least started on grass and grass-fed and then moved to a feedlot for the last portion of their life. These feedlots are what we see in anti-meat propaganda all the cows and the pigs lined up in a row inside or the chickens all crammed inside together. These images are um, shocking and disgusting and the reality of a lot of the meat that end up on people's plates and in restaurants and you should be bothered by these images. But avoiding meat isn't this simple answer to a complex problem because change doesn't come from people just turning their backs on something and avoiding it. It comes from demand. The more people that are buying grass-fed, pasture-raised, organic meats, the more people educating themselves, buying from local farms that are trying to do the right thing, the more we can shift how meat is produced in this country so back to the feedlots for a little bit another thing that makes this environment so gross is that the manure needs to sit in there for 90 days before it can be spread on crops so as you can imagine it's basically a petri dish of bacteria for three months before it ends up in our soil and then in our food this is where foodborne illnesses and outbreaks happen is these you know factory farms This is also where superbugs and antibiotic resistance happens, because you better believe we have to give a ton of antibiotics to these animals to try and control all the bacteria and the funk growing in these environments. And over time, the animals become resistant to those antibiotics. And when this happens, all of the bacteria isn't being killed off, and then we eat that meat and get sick. So factory farming is why I became a vegetarian. In that first nutrition class I took in college, the instructor showed us uh, the movie Fast Food Nation without any fair warning um, of what we were about to see, which was incredibly graphic images of the kill floor and a story of how animal feces ended up in the burgers at a fast food chain. So they sent this guy to trace it back to the source, which was this factory farm. I mean I don't know how anyone is able to eat meat after that movie not knowing anything about factory farming versus pasture raised meat and if this was how all meat was processed because that was me at the time I didn't I didn't know so I just looked at this this watched this horrifying movie and thought oh my god this is how all meat was processed and I stopped eating meat that same day uh, it was just the perfect storm of not knowing all the information and then being shown really disturbing images at the same time. Uh, but Chris Cresser brought up a good point saying that if you're not eating meat because you don't agree with factory farming, then what are you doing eating all that corn, soy, and wheat? Um, he said that's like saying if you don't eat vegetables because you don't believe in GMO crops. It's kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting point. Um, All right. What about the idea that some people have? I I heard, I used to hear this a lot. So some people won't eat red meat. They're like red meat is bad, but they eat chicken or dairy.
1: Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of judgment around meat that comes from within the vegetarian sphere because there are so many variations of a vegetarian diet Some people eat eggs and dairy, but no meat. Some people eat eggs, dairy and fish, but no meat. Some people eat chickens, but not cows. And most of the time they're doing it because they've read or heard somewhere that this was the right thing to do. But that's kind of the message we wanna get across here is that there is no right way to eat. There's only the way that you choose to eat. So here are just some things to consider within these different layers of a vegetarian diet so if you're eating chicken but not red meat people seem to have an easier time rationalizing eating tons of chicken breasts not even necessarily organic or pasture-raised and feel that it's a better or nicer option than eating a cow first off the value is going to be really different a cow can obviously feed a lot more people than one chicken can and it's much more affordable so are you willing to spend up to $15 a pound on organic pasture-raised chicken
0: compared to like $7 a pound for grass-fed beef? I would totally recommend going back to the episode where I interviewed the Vernons from Vernon Family Farm. They raise chickens and just, just to see how much time and money go into raising chickens properly. It's an extremely expensive, uh, not always efficient process. And it makes me wonder time and again how grocery stores can sell a fully cooked rotisserie chicken for like six bucks. It's like, what is going on? What, what is even, like, what is that? What are you selling? Because it's so far from food at this point. Um, But I think to your point, like everybody, rationalizes eating chicken breast because it's like America's sweetheart protein. Like we've all been eating chicken breast for so long and we've just like totally cut ourselves off from like where it even came from. It's like it's
1: so true. Think of all the diet trends that have gone that have come and gone. Like even when saturated fat was an issue, when cholesterol was an issue, when everything chicken breast was always included on everyone. Yeah. On (laughs) everyone. Yes. Yes. America's sweetheart. So Aim for buying um, organic or just non-GMO pasture-raised chickens and how I like to save money and get some more value here is by buying different cuts uh, and meats that are going to be cheaper. I never buy chicken breasts from the farmer's market because I cannot afford it, Um, but I will buy wings or drumsticks because those are always cheaper and the quality is awesome. So for me if a chicken is going to be used for food then I also want to I want to contribute to it as much of that animal being used as possible so it's not like it's just being killed for you know the standard white meat making bone broth is another
0: great way to get more value from a chicken. Yeah, and when we buy the broilers, I mean they're it's like a 30 usually around $30 for a broiler, eh, maybe like 25, which is definitely on the more expensive side when you compare it to a fully cooked chicken from market basket for $6. But to your point, um, you know, I'll roast the chicken and then I will eat that chicken, right? We'll eat the chicken. I'll pick over the entire carcass, make a bone broth out of the stock, reserve the leftover meat and make a soup with it. So we're eating that chicken like for a while. We're just making sure we get every scrap of it. And you could also um, use chicken feet and chicken necks for really gelatinous broth. So you can really use that animal. I mean, with the exception of the feathers, from from top to tail.
1: Yes, and it might seem like jarring to like imagine like you know necks and feet, but. For me, I've I've actually found that it feels much more respectful of the animal's life that I'm able to try to um, pull as much from that as possible, you know, rather than kind of carelessly, you know, focusing on the
0: breast and then chucking the rest. I completely agree. And in fact, the very first time I roasted my own chicken, my mom was at my house um, to kind of help me. And she's like, do you want me to just do it for you? And I was like, nope. If I'm going to start eating meat, then I am responsible for the preparation of this bird. Like I have to be willing to put my hand inside a carcass and pull out all the gristly bits and like I want to do this myself because I want to be interconnected with my food. Obviously, it's not exactly like I'm going out and hunting and gathering my food, but this was the way that I could do it in the most respectful way to me is like to like not disassociate myself from the act of, um, I don't know, or like not from the act, but maybe disassociate myself from the death involved, like an animal Mm -hmm. sacrificed its life in order to provide me with food
1: yes yeah Um, so what if you are only eating eggs and dairy but not meat just make sure that they're organic pasture raised eggs um, which are available in most grocery stores now yes they cost more but the other option is absolutely going to be from factory farmed chickens so not what you want and for dairy we strongly recommend getting your dairy from grass-fed cows yogurt milk butter cheese grass-fed all the way. Um, I've seen a lot of vegetarians that have no problem eating dairy but are absolutely against eating meat and it makes me question why it's okay to drink milk from a cow that spent most of its life in confinement but not okay to eat red meat from a cow that's lived on pasture its whole life. It's not that every single day of a pasture-raised animal's life is perfect, but we know the life of a factory-farmed animal is not.
0: Yeah, and I've always had a real problem with the idea of vegetarianism for ethical reasons while still consuming conventional dairy. It's just so silly because dairy farming is – Some of the Mm -hmm. absolute worst. I mean, it's definitely worse than raising cattle for meat. It's definitely worse than that in terms of the conditions of the animals and how they're treated and all of that. And they're being kept alive to basically be tortured their entire life. So um, again, I think we can pick what's convenient for us to, we're going to, you know, we're going to focus on this and say, I don't eat red meat for these reasons, but I'm just going to turn a blind eye to the creamer in my coffee, you know, and this isn't passing judgment. This is, again, just trying to provide information. Like if you're going to look at, if you're going to look at something and point your finger and, and call judging, you know, judgment out on other people for doing one thing, but you need to like turn inward and really evaluate, like, every other food practice you're doing too um so if you are consuming dairy and you think it's like kind of like you know scot-free oh my chobani greek yogurt (laughs) i always have to i always have to get in my my distaste for chobani (laughs) Chobani, every episode (laughs) um just make sure that you're aware of the fact that it is uh there are some suspect farming practices going on behind conventional dairy faux show
1: yes yes
0: all right we're kind of like dabbling into the whole ethics morals conversation so let's get into it let's do it
1: okay I mean like each of us has our own code of ethics that we live by what feels right to us what feels wrong and eating meat or avoiding meat is going to feel different to different people and i don't want anything i say to come across as challenging to your personal beliefs or ethics i just want to throw out some things that i personally found interesting and thought they were things most of us don't really think a lot about or may not have even considered before um I remember being in class in college and and first hearing the term humane slaughter. And I immediately raised my hand. I This like was one of those moments that is just like burned into my memory. And I remember saying, isn't that kind of an oxymoron? And I just didn't get it. I had only become a vegetarian like a year or two before that. And I still kind of thought that all killing of animals was done in just this awful way, period. But humans are actually the only creatures on earth who are capable of being consciously humane in terms of death. We often will hear comparisons of uh, being killed in a slaughterhouse to an animal dying in nature, but I'm not sure many of us really think about what this comparison looks like in reality. A natural death does not equal a painless or a better death. Animals are eaten alive by other animals, they get injured or they break a leg, they can't find enough food anymore, they starve to death, they get sick, they can't keep up with their pack anymore, their pack is hunted and they're killed that way. This is what the food chain in nature looks like. This idea that an animal just kind of grows old and lays down in a field of flowers and dies a peaceful death isn't the reality. Can we consider a death in the wild better than a quick, humane, and controlled death that we can accomplish with the technology today in humane slaughterhouses? These are not factory farms. This is a totally different environment.
0: I know I'm thinking of like, we watch Animal Planet with Hattie, and sometimes I'm like, oh my God, don't, no, don't kill that thing. Don't kill that, do- whatever it is. Ugh, and then brutal. I'm like, well, that's nature, man. That's just nature being nature. Yep. Everybody got to eat. Most of us don't see how
1: animals live and die. We buy everything processed and clean and packaged up in the store or at the farmer's market, and we're just so removed from it all. And we just also don't like to think about something having to die for us. But the food chain includes both life and death. Then we have vegan propaganda showing awful images of feedlots and shitty conditions and inhumane treatment of animals. And this is what people think of when they think of eating meat and how all animals are killed. This is what I used to think too. But just because you opt out of the system and stop eating meat, it doesn't mean animals aren't going to be killed or going to die in nature in some other way. This is because death is a part of nature. This includes our own death. Something Diana Rogers said that said was that uh, a vegan or a vegetarian diet is not a bloodless diet so that that might sound harsh to you but there's a lot of life within the fields of wheat and corn and soy and vegetables and those animals also become a part of the food chain and you know this food chain that gets all of those crops from the fields to your plate and I think it's easier to only think about the bigger animals and factory farming is because this is what we're always shown, images of that. But there are tons of smaller animals, bunnies, birds, bees, butterflies, all living in these environments that we get vegetables and grains from. And there's death in these environments too, um, especially when we're spraying everything with glyphosate and other chemicals. Again, it's it's like the point Chris kresser made. Would you stop eating vegetables altogether just because you're against GMO crops, or would you just
0: avoid GMO crops? So <laughs> Yeah. I mean the any way you swing it, that cultivating and harvesting food, even vegetables, are it just it destroys animals habitats it displaces animals and so if we're um you know if the argument is well we should just utilize more of the earth to produce vegetables to feed the planet well that's still going to displace animals and how do you put like you know who's more worthy the the cow or the mouse you know what i mean like Mm. you start playing god a little bit um and again you know we're not you know like professors of philosophy and ethics and morals we're just throwing out some other ideas to start to consider when you think about this whole thing, especially when we're talking about the use of Roundup and glyphosate. I mean, when you're talking about a sustainable and ethically sound vegetarian diet, are you talking about all organic and not using glyphosate, not using Roundup on your own lawn and all that kind of stuff? Because glyphosate poisons everything around it. It poisons the environment. It it poisons habitats. It poisons other animals. Um, and then how about the, the humans that are producing your food? Do you ever stop to think about them, how they're being treated? You know, fair wages. Are they getting exposed to chemicals? Are they getting exposed to glyphosate? You know, these are all things to to really consider when you're looking at the whole ethic, you know, the ethics, you know, uh, standpoint. Um, if you're going to dive into the morals argument, you have to open up your lens. to to think about it all. Um, I mean, if one of the reasons to support veganism is because of population issues and the inability to feed future generations with a meat-inclusive diet, then by procreating and having children, we're contributing to the problem. You know, and that's obviously a very, you know, super inflammatory thing to say. And I kind of did that on purpose. And I have a daughter, so I'm not you know, I'm not serious here, but I'm just kind of just
1: another I'm it's just trying just another point. Yeah,
0: just trying to drive home the point that the foods and ethics conversation goes way beyond just don't eat meat and, and, th- and then your hands are clean. Um, mm-hmm. But I think our human brains want to make things black and white, right? Our human brains want to say, I'm doing this good deed. I'm making this sacrifice. So there has to be a reason for it. Um, So then I'm going to subconsciously cherry pick all the data that supports my decisions and turn away from the things that don't. And what we're trying to do is just say, like, don't turn away from it. You know, don't turn away from that. Um, Opting out of meat doesn't necessarily mean that your hands are automatically clean. Um, And that's kind of what we mean by it not being a bloodless diet.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to Chris Cresser's comment about, like, you know, saying, are you going to opt out of eating vegetables altogether because you don't agree with GMO crops? You can include animals in your diet and also be against factory farming at the same time. You don't have to be all or nothing if that doesn't feel right to you. We can decide for ourselves what we want to buy and eat and what we don't. Um, Something that Diana Rogers has said that is just so on point Our disconnection from nature is at the root of our dilemma. Only when we understand how real food is produced and that humans are a part of nature, not in control of it, will we fully be
0: able to move forward in a sustainable way. I love this. It's so amazing. It's so true. We are so removed from our food source as a society. We can just walk into a grocery store, which is an extraordinarily sterile environment, and that's what we've been conditioned to think as normal and natural, but it's the furthest thing from natural, right? We, we have people who balk at images of someone hunting for their food, and yet they're willing to sit down to a plate – of burger and fries, like there's that disconnection, or even sit down to a plate of a veggie burger and fries. But the point is, there's absolutely no thought as to where that food came from, who grew it, how it got to your plate. It's absolute disconnection. And I think it's fair to say that it's something that we take advantage of. We we can't just opt out of a food system. We can't just opt out of an ecosystem. As above, so below. Our external world is so interconnected to our internal environment and the earth is literally within us we come from it and we return to it so we have to we have to honor some of its um practices there is somebody yes. shooting like you can hear gunshots right now i don't know um no but it's very funny um because it's hunting season right now so like oh my god like hunting that is, out in the woods. that is
1: very ironic <laughs> that's funny um one more thing mark hyman um he started calling the way he eats the pegan diet because it combines the best parts of a vegan diet with the best parts of a paleo diet kind of landing somewhere in the middle because both diets have so much to offer in terms of health and sustainability that you guys you really don't just have to pick one and run with it there doesn't have to be only one right way. You can take aspects from all different ways of eating and just do what works for you and figure out what makes you feel your best. If that's a vegan diet, cool. If it's a diet that includes animal protein, that's cool too. And so is
0: everything else in between the two. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Uh, One thing I'm going to weasel in here before we close on out, because um, I think it's something that that people will ask about, or it's a question that will come up. The whole red meat and cancer thing. I do believe we've dabbled a little bit into this on the show before, but I'll, I'll circle back around to it here because uh, three years ago, the World Health Organization classified processed meat as a group one carcinogen, which is a pretty big deal. So everybody freaked out as they do. Um, the classification is no doubt disturbing, but also understand that birth control and alcohol fall into this category, too. <laughs> context. You know, exactly. Context, context, context. Um, and so just because bacon and cigarettes are in the same classification does not mean that bacon is equally as carcinogenic as cigarettes. It's just not how these classifications work. But you could see how somebody could extrapolate that and then go and in, in post, you know, inflammatory things that like bacon's gonna kill you like cigarettes you know it's just as unhealthy and whatever um you know but nobody's saying like alcohol is just as unhealthy as red meat or birth control is just as unhealthy as red meat right you can you can Mm -hmm. take this information and kind of just like choose how you know what you do with it and how you convey it and that's why especially from practitioners um like really be mindful about the way that you present information to your audience because people can really take things and, and run with it so anyway um you can definitely see how somebody can make this part of the whole meat causes cancer cascade and you know ultimately i don't really care if people stopped eating processed meat most of it's junk anyway um but i will say that technically sausage falls into this category and there's no chance in oh, no. hell that you're taking my vernon family farm chorizo <laughs> chicken sausage away from me coveted like
1: chorizo hell. chicken
0: sausage yeah like for life uh, i wear them as like necklaces and like nibble on them <laughs> like those sausage links <laughs> the um i will say as always the tricky part about studying food and studying human bodies, is that there's so many variables, you know? And with research, there's bias, there's chance, there's confounding variables, and they just can't be ruled out in all studies. But one thing that we've heard about before, and I'm sure we'll continue to hear about, is something called TMAO. It's a compound that's linked to heart disease. And eating red meat can cause TMAO production the interesting part about that so here's how it goes like depending on how you read it it's like you eat red meat you increase tmao production you increase your risk for cardiovascular disease boom right scary aha but what we also know is that gut microbes so the bacteria we have living in our gut can dictate the conversion of these compounds which just makes the whole conversation even more complex so just the whole point is that there's a lot of moving parts uh to the whole story and ultimately when i what i always come back to is just eat whole foods from the earth and like let everything else shake out as it may and that maybe it includes animals maybe it doesn't but like eat whole foods from the earth i'm just never going to get behind the idea that a man-made processed product, like a veggie burger, is going to trump a whole food from the earth. You can throw all the science in front of me that you want, but this is really where I personally draw a hard line and I just lean on my common sense, right? Yep. Okay. So, like, Let's recap all of everything that we just said and uh, how do we summarize this? Basically, if you are committed to a vegan or a vegetarian diet, that's awesome. Just be sure to take into consideration some of the com- common nutrient deficiencies that I talked about and ways to safeguard yourself against those. Um, it might make sense to work with a practitioner to be so sure that you're supporting yourself in the best way possible, maybe get some nutrient testing done, that sort of thing. Um, and if you do eat a meat inclusive diet, some ways to make sure that's the most health supportive diet for you is to drastically reduce or eliminate your reliance on factory farmed animals. So really only consume well-sourced, well-fed animals. This is also going to ensure that, you know, you're supporting sustainability. And again, from that whole ethic and ethics and morals conversation, um, I mean, it's not certainly not for us to tell you how to be ethical, but, you know, that's the best way, in our opinion, to do it. You also want to shore up your gut health because that is going to um, contribute to whether or not meat is affecting you positively or negatively from a health standpoint and just basically how everything affects you. Um, Consider reducing your consumption of refined carbohydrate. You want to eat meat within the context of a plant-rich diet. So I am not against plant-based diets, but I think plant-based diets can also include some meat. Any diet should include lots of plants, in my opinion. So yep. always include lots of cruciferous veggies, fresh herbs. Those are going to be antioxidant rich and it's going to um, kind of counteract any negative constituent of um, eating meat. And if you do eat a lot of meat, you want to favor gentle and slower cooking methods over grilling and other high heat methods. And just be sure to cook your meat with a lot of antioxidant-rich foods, like I said, like fresh herbs, olive oil, all that good stuff. You guys, let
1: us know what you thought of this episode. If Thanks for hanging in.
0: Really? I um, I think I might close the comments down on this one.
1: So I, I definitely <laughs> want to hear what people think. And as always, rate, review, share the podcast. Also,
0: I just have to – this was not planned, but we are dropping this the day before Thanksgiving. And so it's like – What? People are going to go into their Thanksgiving dinner just being like, Was
1: this turkey from a factory farm? (laughs) I'll pass.
0: All right, guys. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. Take care of you.